Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Marilyn Thompson. This season, we're talking with Pomona College faculty about how they came to love the field they research and teach. Today, we're talking with Assistant Professor of Philosophy, Ellie Anderson. She specializes in continental European philosophy and is also the co-host of the philosophy podcast, Overthink. Welcome, Ellie. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming. Tell us about your background. How did you become interested in philosophy? I grew up not too far from Pomona, about 35 miles away in Glendale. And so I'm from the Los Angeles area originally. Mm -hmm. And both of my parents were in the entertainment industry. My mom was a lounge singer and an actor. And my dad was an actor and a model (laughs) and and also a singer. And both of them very talented, talented singers. And so there was like a lot of creative energy growing up in my household, but Mm -hmm. neither of my parents were academically inclined. Neither of them graduated from college, but they loved to read books. And so I grew up with a lot of books around me and a a sort of interest from far away Mm -hmm. in academia without actually knowing anybody in academia (laughs) myself. Um, But of course, your question was about philosophy rather than academia, (laughs) and those aren't quite the same thing. Um, So I think part of what originally sparked my interest in philosophy specifically is that I also grew up going to church. And it's very common, actually, to find philosophers who grew up religious, although many of us no longer are religious, because having that space for thinking and questioning – and reflecting on big ideas once a week Mm -hmm. through that ritual of going to a space where you're Mm -hmm. in community with other people and Mm -hmm. thinking about um, spiritual questions provides, I think, an important mental space or generates a mental space for that goes Well, that goes back back many uh, hundreds of years. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And so my my upbringing was pretty liberal, but it was, you know, Los Angeles area we're talking. Um, This church was in Hollywood. But um, it it was also, you know, I I think it it was a religious environment. And I think um, it's very common to find people who who come out of that kind of background going into philosophy Mm -hmm. um, because of the intellectual practices of questioning and doubting that religion uh, generates. Mm -hmm. So I kind of combined my interest in reading with my interest in thinking about these types of things as a teenager and um, was reading a lot of theology. Um, Went into my local Barnes and Noble back when that's what we did Mm -hmm. (laughs) and realized there was a section called philosophy. When you could get coffee. Well, we still do. (laughs) (laughs) I know. We we still have it. I would say it's a little bit less of a of a par- cultural touchstone than it was then. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I discovered philosophy really through bookstores and um, just started started looking at books or checking checking them out at the li- or at the library or or uh, buying them at the bookstore. And then by the time I got to college, I thought I already wanted to do philosophy. Mm-hmm. And coming from a family where um, uh, you know, it, it's not exactly like finding a, a standard career path was the norm. Mm-hmm. As going into academia didn't seem that that seemed actually a little bit more straight and narrow than going into entertainment, which would have been my other choice. So. <laughs> what aspect of entertainment was interesting to you? I was really into acting and mm-hmm. and singing too. I was I was really passionate about musical theater. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that goes back. We we learned from your podcast that yeah. goes back to middle school. It it does. Yes, that's <laughs> you. <laughs> Done you our listened homework. to our touch episode. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. So so I did uh, I did the 
theater all throughout my childhood and up through college and was considering getting an MFA in acting, but mm-hmm. then decided to to go into academia instead because I just liked the writing too much. I um, like performing, which I get to do by having a podcast and also being in the classroom is really a sure. performance in a yeah, way as well. For sure. But I knew that I wanted to be to be doing something that involved writing. What made you decide away from acting into academia? So I think I think that that piece, the writing piece, yeah. and and also as I was acting, I was finding that the most interesting part of acting for me was writing ten hmm. page psychological backgrounds on my characters to get into character, <laughs> <laughs> and being on stage was kind of added fun extra. Got it. Um, and so I, yeah, I thought I might as well go into a field that's that's more writing oriented and mm-hmm. also that generates the kind of critical thinking that philosophy allows for. And then with you've chosen philosophy, how how did you find your niche, your special areas? How did how did that come about? Yeah. So I've always been interested in the question of what makes us us. Who am I is my guiding research question and has been for a very long time. Um the nature of selfhood and how we relate to others is really important to me. So I think, you know, that's such a broad question that you can go in so many different directions mm-hmm. uh, with that. It doesn't even just have to be a philosophical direction. You can also think about psychology and sociology and anthropology and neuroscience. But for me, following this philosophical path, I first was really interested in um, some American philosophy at the intersection of psychology and philosophy. William James was the mm-hmm. was the figure mm-hmm. I wrote my undergrad thesis on. <laughs> and um, I've also been a really longtime practitioner of Buddhist meditation and the insight meditation tradition. Mm-hmm. And um, once I got to graduate school, I went to a program that really specialized more in continental European philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so the, the practice of meditation that I've had for a long time hasn't shown up so much in my philosophical work because... Um, Specializing in in Buddhism is very very challenging and requires a lot of facility with different languages that I don't mm. know, and so I'm not a scholar of that work. Um, but I did already by the time I got to grad school speak French, and so mm. it was a natural fit for me to specialize in French philosophy. So mm. I ended up. How did up, you learn it? Um, I started in high school, and then I took it in college, and I studied abroad in Paris. Yeah. And then in grad notes school. with Maryland's travels. Okay. You're, are you a French speaker as well? Oh, I wish. I wish. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's one of the things that we read was you said about your research that drawing on insights from Simone de Beauvoir and Jacques Derrida, I claimed that other people sometimes know us better than we know ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's really provocative. Tell us Thanks. about that. Yeah. So... Um, I think where that description comes from is from my dissertation, right. um, yeah. and which was about the nature of selfhood such that the difference between self and others is not actually that stark of a difference or as stark of a difference as we often think it is. And mm-hmm. so if you think about some of the practices that we undertake in order to generate self-knowledge, they often look pretty similar to the kind of practices that we use to generate knowledge about other people. And so if I'm feeling a certain way, I might have to ask myself, what is this that I am feeling? Am I feeling hungry? Am I feeling angry? And I'm going to pay attention to certain cues in order to figure that out. Now, some of those cues are ones that other people don't have access to. Like the way that I'm feeling in my body right now is not something that another person would have access to. 
But another person would have access to a sense of my patterns, of my habits, of my behaviors, especially if they've known me for a really long time. And they might actually be able to more accurately describe what's going on with me than I can myself. Um, they might be able to say, I can tell you're hungry right now. It seems like you're mad at me, but actually <laughs> you haven't eaten in a while. And I know when you haven't eaten in a while, hangry. you tend to get a little <laughs> angry. Exactly. Um, so I think I think hangriness is a great example of uh, a time where frequently others can actually know more about us than we do about ourselves. So Simone de Beauvoir says, yeah, existentialist philosopher whom I whom I specialize in, and um, she works a lot in feminist philosophy as well. She says that strictly speaking, self knowledge is impossible. So she'll actually take the mm. kind of situation that I've just described and radicalize it further, and say it's not just that self knowledge is generated often in the same way that we generate knowledge about other people, but it's actually harder to gain knowledge about ourselves um, than it is about other people to the point that it's actually impossible to have knowledge about yourself. Um, I don't quite go that far in my research. Mm -hmm. I do think self-knowledge is possible, but I think it depends a lot on what, how we are defining the self um, of which knowledge is possible. And I think there's a lot to say for the fact that we don't know ourselves as well as we might think. You've written about her book, The Second Sex. Yes. Tell us about that. So Beauvoir's book, The Second Sex, is sometimes known as the Bible of feminism. It came out in the late 1940s and really helped catalyze the feminist movement as we know it today because she focused on the lived experience of women in patriarchy. Mm -hmm. This wasn't an analysis from the outside talking about the way that women are exploited through the material conditions of labor or economics. Um, it wasn't a, a legal argument. It wasn't an argument from a scientific perspective. It was an argument from a first-person perspective, which falls out of the school of philosophy known as phenomenology. Mm -hmm. Phenomenology studies lived experience. And so Beauvoir notes that in the lived experience of women, uh, there are all of these clues to the nature of patriarchy. The lived experience of women is distinct from the lived experience of men in a society that is structured based on a gender binary. So one of the reasons that this book has been so influential is that it is uh, it, it enables us to move away from arguments about biological essentialism. The claim about women and men is not a claim about anatomy or biology, uh, nor is it simply a claim from a sort of social constructivist perspective. It's rather a claim that the social conditions in which we find ourselves and our anatomical and biological conditions are complex because they're always taken up by individuals who are actually living out those conditions. Um, this is also the existential piece too. We are free in relation to the situations in which we find ourselves, but not in the sense that I can just choose whoever I want to be. I can't wake up one morning and say I'm the next or I'm the, I'm the great American novelist. I would have to prove that through actual projects in the world. Mm -hmm. And so our self-identity is always shaped in relation to historical and social conditions, but it is also something that we have some responsibility for. And so I think that kind of cocktail of different elements was really influential in the 1940s and afterward, especially afterward, because it helped women to 
recognize their condition as both individual and shared. There were these sort of outlines of the lived experiences of women that um, really transcended the individual experience. Now, that said, the second sex is limited because when Beauvoir talks about lived experience, she's mostly talking about the lived experience of bourgeois French white women at the time at which she's writing. And so mm -hmm. her work has rightly been critiqued from a perspective of uh, intersectionality, if we can even say a perspective of intersectionality. There are many perspectives of intersectionality. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't adequately take race, class, and other identity factors into account. But her work has, I think, pioneered um, the the idea that lived experience is a valid starting point for social critique, which has then allowed for a lot of uh, other and more nuanced work that has come since. You've touched a little bit on feminist theory just now. What got you started? Uh, what picked your interest in it? And then my follow-up question will be about Cinderella. <laughs> <laughs> and you were the lead. Yeah. <laughs> You ditched your glasses and went to contacts. I, I, I did. Good memory. Yeah, I've, I've been the lead in some some quite problematic shows from a feminist perspective. I was also the lead in Kiss Me, Kate, which is a retelling of Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, where I got to sing a song called I Hate Men um, and play a pretty classic shrew. <laughs> that was before I got interested in feminist to, There's theory. no video. Yes. <laughs> Maybe some Sad, of that. Sadly, no. Um was yes. that in school? Was that in like high school or something? There, it was in high school, and and there is actually so there was a video, but it's on DVD, and I tried to play it recently, and it it was totally busted, like it was just skipping. So maybe somebody has a has a master copy somewhere, but I for one do not, sadly. Um, so I got interested in feminist theory in college thanks to a philosophy class where we were reading the work of a feminist theorist named Lucy Rigori, who is this kind of like wild postmodern feminist theorist who talks about um, refiguring feminine values and kind of amplifying them in the face of a masculinist society. And I was really enamored of that when I was in college. And um, since then, I've, I've come to have a bit more of a nuanced perspective on gender than I had then. But um, it really struck me at the time. And then when I studied abroad in Paris in my junior year, I did an independent study on Simone de Beauvoir with um, a professor out there. And we would meet every week in the Café de Flore, which is where Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre would meet regularly oh, wow. and wrote many of their, wow. of their books. So my professor and I would meet in the upstairs of the Café de Flore at the same table where Simone de Beauvoir would work. Wow. <laughs> um, was that inspiring? Just, it, it was It was extremely inspiring. I just, I just fell in love with it. And at the time, I also read Simone de Beauvoir's book, She Came to Stay, which is a novel, because she was actually better known in her lifetime for her mm. novels than mm -hmm. for her uh, philosophy. She considered her, she didn't even consider herself a philosopher, but she won this big literary prize in France in 1954. And um, her novels, yeah, had a, had a big impact. So I was reading her novel, She Came to Stay, while also being really lonely and experiencing a heartbreak because I was in junior year abroad in Paris and feeling very sad having <laughs> broken up with someone in order to go abroad. And um, reading her novel was was a sort of salve to the soul at the time. It's about, it's a really fascinating novel that's about a long-term couple who's in an open relationship and then they introduce a younger woman into their relationship. And it's really a novel about jealousy. 
And years later, after I read this, that became the topic of my first publication in 2014 when I was in graduate school. Um, and so I, I tell students sometimes, if you if you have a book that you love and you have some academic ideas about it, but you feel like you don't know where they're going yet, mm -hmm. that is fine. It took me at least five years from when I first read this novel to, uh, to when it a piece on it actually came out in print. Um, but I think Beauvoir's really rich description of jealousy was very illuminating for me because mm -hmm. her claim is that when we feel jealous in, in the case of the novel, jealous of another woman because her partner desires this other woman, uh, what's really going on is that we feel threatened in our own identity. We tend to go around in our everyday lives thinking we're the center of the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's the it's our partner's desire for, or in, in the case of the novel, her partner's desire for another person that really revealed to her that she was not the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's a lot of existential philosophy about what happens when our default sense of being the center of the universe gets disrupted. Right. And that was my first in, encounter with that idea. And then you've gone on to uh, research issues of selfhood, love, sexual ethics. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. So the two main areas of my work uh, have really not not changed that much since I first read that novel because, yeah, I, I work on selfhood and especially on self-other relations, and then I work on philosophy of love. Um, and those are not – they're not two separate trajectories really, but in terms of actual publications, they've, they've turned out to be so far uh, pretty separate. So my dissertation was on selfhood. Love was not a part of my dissertation really much at all. And then – in the work that I've done um, in the past few years, I've really been writing a lot about love and sex, especially from a feminist perspective. So I have a recent article about sexual consent that argues that the way that we usually think about sexual consent is far too contra uh, contractual. Um, the idea there is that we usually think about consent as a form of giving permission to mm -hmm. another person, mm -hmm. but that's not really how most sexual encounters work. And you can see an acknowledgement of this, I think, in cultural discourse as well. I think it's very easy to parody the idea that a sexual encounter involves at each moment saying, would you like this? May I do this? <laughs> there was a very famous SNL skit in the 1990s that parodied mm -hmm. the sexual consent policy of Antioch College, which was one of the first colleges, if not the first, to have a really strong consent policy put in place. Um, and of course, such consent policies are really important. Uh, sexual assault is a huge problem, and we need to do whatever we can to minimize that. But I don't think that the best way to minimize that is to pretend that most people are having sex with this kind of contract or permission-giving approach. So mm -hmm. in my work on sexual consent, I focus a lot on the embodied nature and on the affective or, or feeling-based nature of consent. Um, drawing on the tradition of phenomenology. And part of the tradition of phenomenology is about getting away from mind-body dualism, this idea that you have a mind and you also have a body, but that your mind just kind of directs your body or gets to say what the body will do or will not do, and rather thinking about co consciousness as itself embodied. And so your body and mm. mind not as being separate. And I think um, erotic experiences are where are one place where this really comes to the fore. In fact, Simone de Beauvoir thought that they were the place where the embodied nature of consciousness most comes to the fore. Because when you're having an erotic experience, you feel 
like both a subject and an object at the same time. A lot of times when we think about being an object, um, it sounds dehumanizing, mm -hmm. it sounds wrong, but for her, it can be a real source of joy and affirmation to mm -hmm. be the object of another person's desire while at the same time feeling yourself to be a subject. Um, and then on the love side, I'm, I'm working on how loving relationships shape our sense of self. And especially how being an object of the other's desire, not just in a sexual sense, but really in a um, in a broader sense than that, can be so affirming, can mm -hmm. give you a sense of your own possibilities. Hmm. Ali, I want to touch on your podcast yeah. and your approach. And um, what is it you describe it as? Juicy conversations that stimulate your intellect. I may be paraphrasing. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even remember. I, I wrote it. I don't know. So, yeah. um, but I haven't listened to all episodes. But I find your approach to philosophy and a podcast and social media in general really interesting. Can Please. you tell us um, how you came about? I know it started over the pandemic. Yeah. I don't know if that maybe had some impetus behind it, but tell us about your podcast and, and how that come about. Thanks. Yeah, I have for a very long time wanted to do public philosophy. And I didn't know quite what that meant. I had a blog for a quick second in grad school, and then the pressures of academia where, frankly, in most academic forms of assessment, public scholarship is not valued very highly, um, led to my wanting <laughs> to do public philosophy and theory, but not actually having the time or resources to do that mm -hmm. for quite some time. Mm -hmm. So I finished my PhD in 2016 and then for a few years kind of wasn't sure quite where I would land and had a series of visiting positions. I taught at Pitzer before coming to Pomona. Cool. And then I came to Pomona in 2020 and finally had the time and resources to do something like a podcast. Incidentally, before that happened, um, back in 2019, I happened to be on a road trip with my dear friend David from uh, from grad school, um, who's also a philosopher. David Pena Guzman teaches at San Francisco State University. And we were on a road trip from San Francisco to Oregon together, and we were having these great conversations. And I was like, David, we should... <laughs> We should record our conversations because we love talking to each other so much. <laughs> and we're and our conversations are spanning all sorts of things. We're talking about reality TV and uh, articles we read online, but then also talking about Hegel and Nietzsche. Right. And we both really like podcasts and we mm -hmm. just weren't hearing something that was like what we wanted to do. There are a lot of really good philosophy podcasts out there, but a lot of them are either solo or interview based. And we felt like there was an opening for mm -hmm. a fun, as you said, a juicy conversational podcast. And, and I think that's what caught my attention too. Yeah. Because it, I mean, it, it's obvious that you and David have fun talking to each other. And I think that's- You a, banter beautifully. Right. Thank you. <laughs> but also, I think you integrate really nicely what may not be considered public philosophy so kind of more pure philosophy yeah. with topics of the day Thank or you. gaslighting senses mm -hmm. like can you talk about your and make approach it so then? understandable right thanks yeah. yeah so we from the beginning knew that we wanted to do topics based episodes so mm -hmm. yeah you mentioned an episode on gaslighting that we did um I, we have an episode on disgust that's one of my favorites, one on walking. Um, we're prepping one on emotional labor just in time for Valentine's Day because we're recording, you know, a couple couple mm -hmm. months out. Mm -hmm. you got one in the senses. Yeah, we have a series right now on the five senses. So, uh, yeah, we had our touch and 
vision episodes. Now we're on hearing. We and and then we've got um, the other two. We've got smell and taste coming out. By the time that listeners will be mm-hmm. hearing this, mm-hmm. taste will probably be out. <laughs> and so we so we knew that we had this vision. We also both received our PhDs at Emory University, which has a really strong program in the history of philosophy. And so in order to graduate from our PhD program, we had to demonstrate competence in basically the at every, quote, heavy hitter of the Western canon from ancient times to the present day. <laughs> so it was pretty Eurocentric education, but aside right. from that, it was pretty broad. And so we have a lot of shared, uh, shared ideas to draw from. Mm-hmm. Because we have that broad background. Um, What we didn't anticipate was just how hard it would be to figure out our podcast banter and mode of explanation versus our everyday way of talking. Because when we were on that road trip talking to each other, and I thought it would be really fun to just record the conversations, what I didn't realize was that the way that David and I can talk to each other when it's just us or or other academics involves all kinds of jargon, tons of shortcuts. We don't have to explain things for a lay audience. Not very public philosophy. No, no. (laughs) It it would not have been very accessible. Mm -hmm. And it was really important to us to, to produce something that was accessible. And so we almost had to work from the ground up and rediscover our modes of explanation as well as our relation to one another. And so our Mm. friendship has, I would say at this point, our friendship on the show is very similar to the dynamic of our friendship off air, but it required kind of a lot of retooling. Adjustments, yes, (laughs) Like your on-air persona plus your, yeah. Definitely. You also um, have uh, talks or lectures on TikTok and yeah. and, and YouTube. YouTube. Yeah, tell us about why the, those mediums are important. What's your approach there? And are sure. you a social influencer? In <laughs> philosophy? You know that was coming. <laughs> oh God. Um, so we started a TikTok and other social media just to draw attention to the podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, Luckily, since then, we have had, we've been able to fund Pomona students to take over some of that work, which has been really nice Nice. because to be honest, TikTok is not really my medium of choice. It's just that it's really time consuming, honestly, to have a podcast on top of having an academic job where you are teaching, doing service work and researching is very challenging. And so it's like, I would do a TikTok video that's 15 seconds and it would take me four hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I realized I just didn't have to, the time for that. Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe I'll get back into that. But mm-hmm. what what really helped us take off was that I had also heard that posting your podcast on YouTube can be helpful. Mm-hmm. So we started posting our podcast on YouTube, understandably because it's an audio only podcast, it wasn't really going anywhere. But then I had these videos that I had made for my continental thought class here at Pomona Mm -hmm. while I was teaching remotely during COVID. And so I thought, hey, why don't I go ahead and put those online? They're pretty nicely produced because I live in LA. I have a lot of family and friends in the film industry. And so um, they're (laughs) filmed with a professional (laughs) camera and lighting setup. And so I just posted those online. They're 10 minute uh, 10 to 15 minute lectures introducing philosophers that were originally given to my students before class discussion. Nice. And those really took off. And so we 
over the, by the summer of 2022, we had over a million views, nice. over wow. 65,000 subscribers. So Ooh. we have, yeah, we have a ton of, a ton of views and um, interest in mm-hmm. that project. And then David has started doing some of those lectures as well. Is that ongoing then? It is ongoing because I decided to make more because they were so popular. Yeah. So, yeah. So they are ongoing. I really, I, I'm proud of them. I'm happy with how much interest they've generated. I think what I've been hearing from a lot of people is that uh, David and I are, we're not, we're not exactly what you would expect of a traditional philosophy professor. We're both still pretty young. We are both from historically underrepresented groups in philosophy. And so I think when you look at philosophy YouTube, most of it is old white men and mm-hmm. no shade to the YouTubers out there who are doing really amazing videos mm-hmm. and, and you know, have that identity. But I think it's been – what we've been hearing from listeners is it's nice to see different faces too. Or I, sh- I should say viewers because here we're sure. talking about <laughs> YouTube. Um, the one thing that I feel a little bit mixed about with that is that these videos that have really taken off are short explainers of philosophers – And that's very different from the on-air dynamic that David and I have where we can actually have conversation and debate. And so we'll sometimes get comments on our YouTube channel that we are just – we're not offering any counter-arguments or critiques to the Mm. thinkers we're presenting. And my response to that is that that's just not the purpose of these videos. These Mm -hmm. videos are meant to be introductory. Mm But it does make me feel a little bit uneasy that the impression that some people who are watching our videos are getting is that I just think that Hegel and Nietzsche are right about everything and therefore I am telling you what they said. And that is not true at all. When when I talk about these thinkers with students in my classroom, we are debating, we are critiquing. So David and I have tried to... to shift that a little bit mm-hmm. by offering more and different content on our YouTube channel. But that's mm-hmm. really where I think the podcast is my favorite form of public philosophy at this point because it provides for that conversation. Provides space for more, a little bit more long form, but still public philosophy, in the public philosophy. Definitely. Well, you Definitely. mentioned your students. How do they respond to the ideas that you're discussing in your classes? <sighs> well... We we have the best students. <laughs> I am I am grateful every day for the students at the Claremont Colleges. They are brilliant. I just don't have enough good things to say about them. Um, I feel like we so so it's really important for me in the classroom to develop a strong community and sense of rapport with the students. So I think. When I'm crafting a syllabus, I'm kind of already thinking about what do students need to learn, but also what do I think they'll be interested in, especially if it's an upper level course. I'm teaching right. a class right now where I asked a couple of the students I knew were going to be in the class beforehand, like, what do you want on the syllabus? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we actually get into the classroom, I think they respond with tons of interesting ideas and insights and a lot of really robust robust critiques, a lot of really robust critiques. So we're, I don't, I don't know if you had in mind specific ideas, happy to talk about that, but I would just say from a general perspective, mm-hmm. our students are really interested in theory and they understand that theory and practice aren't opposed, mm-hmm. which is just such a gift because I think philosophy sometimes has a reputation of being overly abstract And that requires doing a lot of legwork to show that that's not the case. But it's also really nice to be with students for whom that 
is kind of a given. And, and that's not to say that that it's always a given. I certainly get comments in the classroom too, like, what does this have to do with real life? But I think our, our students are not... They don't have the anti-intellectualism that a lot of American culture broadly has. And so they're really curious about how they can apply theory to their own lives. And they're always thinking about that, which means that I can sort of trust them to, to be doing some of that work rather than me having to constantly show them how this might be relevant. And, and that's especially nice at undergraduate level where yeah. you may not. But usually, especially in philosophy, maybe in, in, in areas where it's like harder to explain kind of theory and practice. Totally. Um, that's great to hear. Yeah. Why should everyone become at least a little bit familiar with philosophy? Because philosophy is in every other discipline. And it's in, it's in everything we do. So the philosopher Daniel Dennett says there's no philosophy-free science, for instance, because once you start asking questions about why should we trust the findings of science – you're asking philosophical questions. <laughs> and I think the same is true of, of just about any other discipline. Um, philosophy is the discipline that allows us to question our assumptions and to do the critical thinking work that's going to allow us to eventually come up with good answers. So when I teach intro to philosophy, I tell my students that philosophy encourages us to question um, It, it pumps our intuition, to use another phrase from, <laughs> from Dennett, because we all have these intuitions. And those intuitions are philosophical intuitions, but we need to probe those intuitions in order to find out whether they're logically sound or not. So I might have intuitions about the nature of the external world or about how other people are perceiving me or what the problems with our society are. But I need to subject those intuitions to critical thinking. And that's what philosophy allows us to do. And I also think philosophy is the discipline that really allows us to create concepts. That's an idea that you get from the philosopher Gilles Deleuze. Philosophy has a kind of conceptual freedom that I think other disciplines, for good reason, might lack. Um, and so uh, cross-pollination between philosophy and different disciplines, I think, really is to the benefit of uh, all disciplines. And ultimately, philosophy is the love of wisdom. And so if you're if you're interested in wisdom, <laughs> then philosophy is for you. <laughs> and, and I know this sounds this sounds terribly snobbish. I I uh, like I, I do sometimes find myself thinking that philosophy is the best discipline, but I want to be really careful around that because that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that I think the academic discipline of philosophy is quote the best. It's more that I see philosophy as inhabiting every discipline mm -hmm. and being a, a mode of inquiry, perhaps right. even more than a discipline. And so I, I don't want to police the boundaries of philosophy and say that that it's it's in my department in Pearson's Hall where all us. the philosophy is happening. It's more that philosophy is distributed throughout all of the departments. Um, and we also, at the same time, have some unique tools that can help bring that uh, those philosophical insights that are latent in other disciplines to light. Anything else you haven't told us about yet that you want to tell us about I don't know <laughs> I I think we've covered a lot of ground yeah. um yeah I'm just really grateful for the of opportunity course. to be able to We're come having, on and yeah. talk with you both yeah. and really yeah there's there's so much exciting stuff happening here at Pomona I'm so grateful for the community of colleagues and staff and uh and students that we have so yeah excellent right Yeah, absolutely. All right. On that note, we're going to wrap it up. We're going to wrap up this fascinating 
philosophical discussion. Thank you, Ali, for joining us. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. Till next time.